Hi and welcome to the Allplane podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories are available on the Allplane website. That's allplane.tv, A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E dot TV. Now, let's go to today's episode, because I'm sure today's guest and the topics we are going to be talking about won't leave you indifferent. Michael Barner, our guest, is an expert, thinker, and author focusing on renewable energy and decarbonization technology in a broad sense. But Michael has been paying quite a lot of attention to the aviation industry lately, and he's been publishing quite a few articles that contain some really bold predictions about the long-term outlook for the global aviation industry, as well as some really thought-provoking analysis of some of the hottest segments right now in aviation. I'm talking about things like hydrogen propulsion, EV tolls, and other emerging technologies whose feasibility is not yet totally proven. Whether you agree with Michael or not, his very strong opinions are based on a meticulous analysis of the available data and provide what I might call a contrarian view of sorts that I think is worth listening to in times when it's easy to get carried away by all the hype that surrounds the industry. This is, I think, the longest podcast by far that I've done so far. And to be honest, we could have gone on for much, much longer since this was a really far-ranging conversation that could have been easily split into quite a few different episodes. So in any case, that's enough from me for now. And let me welcome Michael to the podcast. Hi, Michael. How are you? Excellent, Mikhail. How are you? Very well. Where are you joining us from today? Uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, which uh, has actually managed to find fall in a, and it actually goes straight into winter. We had snow yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we, we actually experiencing the opposite here. I'm in Barcelona and we are, we are still kind of in the summer. So we, we haven't um, really got cold this year yet, uh, which I guess uh, it's, yeah. it's part of the, you know, the climate, climate change situation, I guess. And that's one of the topics that we're going to talk about today. I must say, well, let me start by saying you are not a pure aviation person. You are more of an energy expert. Uh, am I right to call it this way? I, the way I'll describe it is that I have um, a background as a global technology strategist and transformation mm-hmm. uh, consultant and expert, um, which I you know, uh, worked in Latin American leadership positions in Asia and, of course, all over North America, um, little snippets in Europe. But that enabled me to have a strong systems engineering background to see how technical solutions and components fit into economic human acceptance terms and how they fit into a system of systems which would enable them to succeed or fail. Now, I'd I'd always been an environmentalist, but I didn't have a a good outlet for that. Um, And in recent years, I've managed to pivot appropriately to apply the skills I learned from this global technology strategy and and architecture um, career to uh, assessing each of the major decarbonization problems we face globally and addressing the solution sets that are proposed for them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I've gone through the entire thing of renewable electrical generations, uh, grid storage, through uh, transmission. I've looked at all those components. I've looked at, um, you know, uh, vehicle to grid and all those types of things. And I have projections and expectations about how much of it 
difference which components will make and what the solution set will be. Uh, and now I'm moving on to the harder targets. So I've got projections through 2100 of all marine uh, transportation uh, fuel requirements and what we'll be doing with those. Uh, similarly, aviation. Uh, so mm-hmm. all of transportation, I've covered all of AV, of all of transportation now for the big hitters because transportation is tough stuff. And aviation is one of the hardest targets for decarbonization yep. and, you Indeed. know, for multiple reasons. I mean, they've, they've got, I'll just briefly say, it's not just the CO2, it's the N2O from burning fuels in our atmosphere and it's the contrails. So we've got three problems in aviation that we have to overcome in order to truly articulate that we're decarbonizing the world. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. Actually, I came in contact with your work because you're you're a pretty prolific author in the topic of uh, renewable energy and energy alternatives. Um, I came in contact with your work because of uh, you've been writing quite a lot about aviation recently, which is obviously one of the, as you mentioned, one of the, the hardest sectors to, to decarbonize. And yeah, so you, you've been writing a lot, but you are also an advisor to an electric aviation company called Electron. Uh, we had the founder here in the podcast mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, and you also an advisor to several other companies in decarbonization technologies. We can, we can talk about this now if you wish. You've got a, a pretty strong background in, in different types of technology. You work for IBM as well, I've seen, and you've been yeah pretty active in, in different areas. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself, about your professional background, and also the facet as, a, as an author, as someone, as a thinker in the field of renewable energy? Uh, yeah, so the the global technology career led me around the world. I, I dealt with every domain. I, I, you know, Canadian National Railway was one of my clients, so I clambered over a diesel electric railway. At that point, um, in my, you know, I was actually Margaret Atwood, the author's um, uh, of Handmaid's Tales. You know, pro bono clean tech advisor. She would email me every month or two and say, "Hey, Mike, what about this?" And I would say, "Oh, well, this." She actually introduced me to the um, Graciela Chichilniski and Peter Eisenberger, who are the founders of Global Thermostat, the direct air capture thing. So I was actually attempting to architect and see how these components fit together. Um, you know, subsequently, I was you know trying to shift the um, uh, freight tanker of the firm I was in to be more focused on where the world was going as opposed to where the world had been. Failed miserably, so I left them. Um, and I was already publishing massively at that point, uh, so it was an easy transition. But I guess there are three or four things that I bring to bear that um, assist me in, in ways that, um, you know, to, to enable me to find u- the useful set, subset of solutions. Uh, the first is I'm a nerd. I'm a big nerd. Um, I actually like doing math. I like doing spreadsheet models. I like looking up um, actual um, physical constraints, laws, and figuring out the chemistry and the physics associated with specific types of technologies. I may interrupt you here one second. One of the things that, that basically caught my eye when I first came across your work is that you were very sharp in analyzing, assessing uh, some of these different, let's say, different technologies, different approaches to the decarbonization of aviation. And you were actually not mincing words. You were very straightforward about this doesn't really stand a chance. This is much better, this, that, this. So, you know, it's a sort of, let's say, reality check that you often find missing, especially now where there is all this hype and you see new projects every day and everything is 
it's going to work perfectly fine and it's going to be rolled rolled out in in just a few years very easily but but then yeah then if you actually crunch some numbers uh well that's when the questions start appearing and i think you you did a really good job in bringing forward some of these concerns about some of these projects that are out there yeah well it's it's there's a lot of money people out there there's a lot of business people who rely on somebody else to say what's possible or not and and they're also relying on um in in many cases like the spac bubble which i um you know spent a lot of time analyzing published on there was a a lot of expectation um from a lot of the people involved that they'd be able to pump and then dump and get out with a lot of money and they did um i you know there's a lot of lawsuits pending the sec is investigating i expect some criminal charges just as you know nicola had and so there's a three or four things going on with that. One is that people want a silver bullet. And so they're susceptible to, oh, I I don't have to change. I can actually do exactly what I'm doing, but it'll be virtuous in the future. And it'll be virtuous soon. So I I don't have to change my behaviors. And that's a a hope, right? Um, And and that gets to another aspect of how I look at things. So I I do the the STEM stuff, but I also spend a lot of time looking at um, cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. What will actually be acceptable in the marketplace and actually transform people's behavior? You know, I've got a, a filter for how I assess things, and one of them is respect human nature, which is any solution which requires human beings to change is guaranteed to fail. Any solution which requires human beings to voluntarily fix everything just by individual choices is guaranteed to fail. We're humans, we're messy. Uh, have you read uh, Kahneman and Tversky's Thinking Fast and Slow? I haven't. I have the book at home, but I must confess, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> you, you should. You should read it. It's it's fascinating reading. Yeah. And I've spent time with cognitive psychologists. Like you, you probably know skepticalscience.com, well, the um, the website that deals with the the top. Last time I counted, 198 uh, global warming denial memes. And, and John Cook is the primary person behind that. He's a an Australian, a cognitive scientist. And I spent a fair amount of time talking with John and to a lesser extent, his PhD advisor, uh, Stephen Lewandowski, another another Australian. And, you know, had a spent a lot of time thinking about how people think and seeing how they fail to see stuff. Um, so that's kind of another aspect of yeah. why I do this stuff. And, and you talked yeah. about my bluntness. The nice thing is I'm not actually part of any industry and so I don't have to be nice to people's egos who I know. I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. telling them their baby is ugly. I can just say, this is reality. This is not reality. And then, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can do that across multiple domains, yeah. which is nice. I have a degree in economics and uh, particularly my faculty here in, in Barcelona was very focused on this topic of the incentives. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, they drilled us all these models, assuming what you were saying. So, so yeah, I totally get what you say about, about that. One of the most interesting ones for me, because I spent time, I, I, I assisted with a couple of major projects in Canada related to um, smart metering mm-hmm. of electricity. And one of the theories that they had was that people, if they were, saw where their peak electricity demand was, they would change their behavior. And, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, there was a great study out of um, Ontario where they did a test to say, okay, if we actually tell people the price is going up, will they reduce their consumption? And they, and if we tell them that the value is greater, the price difference is greater, will they change their behavior more? And what they mm-hmm. found was that human beings, about 11% of them 
responded to a signal, a text that said the price is going up. Um, and then they doubled and tripled the price and they got another 2%. So 13% mm. change in behavior with explicit in the moment signals about electricity demand costing them more. And the rest of the people just ignored it. They actually got much better value out of automated devices where people could set a policy for the automated device, like a okay. oven or a dishwasher or you know an electric car charger yeah. and say, and then it would just charge in the low cost timeframes. That worked. Yeah. But getting humans to do stuff, we're messy. We yeah. Just... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah. So there's the um, so there's the independence. There's the uh, willingness to do the STEM stuff. There's the cog the the human side of things, um, and there's the breadth. Um, uh, the last thing I'll say is there's a lot of people who are brilliant, deep, knowledgeable in their silo, but they don't know about the next silo over. Um, for example, as I look at agriculture, one of the, you know I'm big on biofuels, much more so than many, and part of that is because we are. Um, I look at global uh, population patterns and everybody's moving out of subsistence farming into cities, leaving semi-arable and arable land open. That land is being aggregated by agribusinesses into a small number of highly profit-oriented, uh, I'll, I'll try to say this as politely as possible. Corporations are sociopaths. They are um, entirely able to be incented with fiscal incentives and um, punishments in a way that human beings aren't because they run on spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. And that means that the agribusinesses, we can incent them very effectively to move to better practices. And one of those better practices is low tillage agriculture. Another is precision agriculture, which saves them a lot of money. It's cheap because it's GPSs and computers and you know some equipment. And the third is uh, moving to agrogenetics. Um, agrogenetics is enabling us, has already given us a whole bunch of stuff in the, in the you know, green revolutions. Um, but right now we're going through another phase. You know, I spoke to the CEO and co-founder of Pivot Bio um, last year, um, Karsten Temme. And Karsten is a PhD uh, geneticist. And what they've done is they have taken a microbe, which exists in the soil today, which produces nitrogen mm -hmm. um, in return for sugars from the plant route, root. So you've got the root and you've got the microbe and the root, the, the plant exudes some sugars into the local biome and the microbe in return fixes nitrogen from the air. But if we put fertilizer on it, the microbe has is a lazy, like all um, living things. It has a little sensor. It says, if there's enough nitrogen, I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to get fat, happy and multiply. Uh -huh. um, and so what they did is they turned off the nitrogen sensor on the, the microbe and they're able to actually reduce the requirement for fertilizer from outside quite substantially. Uh, right now they have, uh, last time I talked to them, they had a million acres of corn under management with their microbe and reduced fertilizer requirements by 25%. Um, wow. They're aiming for 100% fertilizer replacement and they're aiming for the three major food crops, uh, cereal crops, corn, uh, grain, and rice globally. And they're not alone in this. This mm -hmm. is the kind of thing we're seeing Globally, there's massive changes coming through that. But what that means is we have a whole bunch of greater opportunity for better agricultural practices, reduced land use in agriculture, and a whole bunch of things, which means we can also go with the stock cellulosic. We're now talking aviation. Stock cellulosic biofuels take the stock, like if you have the corn, you have the head of corn, which has the little yellow things that we like to eat or we feed to our animals. And we have the stock, which right now we throw away. Yeah. You take the stock instead and you put it into bioferrometers and you get out alcohols, which you can then upgrade 
into uh, Jet A1, uh, kerosenes and stuff like that. And you can actually double crop corn, grain, and rice and have far more biofuels than we actually require. Mm -hmm. um, and you've also got the semi-arable land to grow switchgrass on, which is a very effective uh, feedstock for cellulose um, uh, biofuels. I've, I've used the Otis calculators, um, OSTI calculators, OSTI calculators, to calculate the global land requirement for all the biofuels for peak aviation and peak um, marine shipping, the two segments that I project will actually require some of them. Mm -hmm. And we have more than enough carrying capacity with stock cellulose technologies. So uh -huh. the point of that is that requires me to know the global changes in population, the global changes in agriculture. It requires me to spend time looking at agrogenetics and solutions in agriculture. It requires me then to have looked at all of aviation and all of marine shipping and all the rest of transportation in order to have an opinion about what will work and what won't. And yeah. So that's what I'm, much of what I spent the last decade of my life doing is working through all these different silos. And right now, I'm also spending a lot of time looking at industrial displacement, um, chemical manufacturing replacement. Um, you, you mentioned the other firm that I was associated with. Uh, I'm almost stopped with this little set yeah, of yeah. words, and you'll get a chance to get a word in edgewise in a second. It's a battery, battery maker, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. Agora Energy Technologies, also based out here in British Columbia, um, with Christina uh, Genge and Elod Genge as the co-founders, uh, both PhDs in chemical engineering, uh, him with an as an electrochemist, which means I spend a lot of time talking to electrochemistry nerds and battery nerds, which is mm -hmm. great. I learn a lot. But their technology is also an industrial component of the future. It uses electrochemistry and it combines CO2 in a gaseous form and bromine and puts it through a, batter, a redox flow battery and in an, one of the models, it'll actually produce baking soda. Oh, so it'll actually manufacture bicarbonates and carbonates, depending upon the chemistry that's consumed. It does it at room temperature. It does it with renewable electricity. And it displaces things like the Solve process, which is like a 150-year-old process, which uses a whole bunch of heat from coal or natural gas in this step, uses ammonia, which is nasty stuff in this step, and is made from uh, you know fossil fuel hydrogen. Um, and it you know has... Basically, every box of baking soda you buy has three boxes of CO2 mass, of equivalent mass, coming along for the ride. So that's the uh -huh. industrial component I'm starting to look at as well. So uh -huh. I'm looking at these things, and, and that requires breadth and the ability to go deep. So those are the things that I bring to the table. So that's a yeah. long-winded way of saying, here's who I am. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, actually, I I was looking forward to having an independent expert here in the podcast and, and someone that can could bring a, like a sort of a holistic view of mm -hmm. everything that's going on now in the industry, because basically those of us that are tracking this industry, is it's becoming even hard to follow all the news that are being made every week, every day. Uh, there are new stories, new deals, new projects, new presentations, etc. And it, it's hard to make sense of all of this and how all these different elements, all these different pieces fit together. You've been touching up on all of them in, in your writings. If you don't mind, I would like to start by your projections because you look sure. at air travel demand yep. uh, on a very long time scale. So you are looking at a projection for 2100, quite far into the future. And you were kind of bearish on air travel demand. Uh, then I saw that 
you recently published another post where you explain how you've been you've been talking with some some people in the industry as well that were a bit more bullish than you and you also uh, mentioned that so i just was trying to make sense of all this if you stand by by that projection that basically just to summarize you said that growth is going to be flat until 2100 uh, flatter so, than projections so right. boeing and iata have projections out that you know basically say four percent compounded annual growth rates mm -hmm. for the next 20 years and there's my projection is uh that we're going to recover to 2019 levels maybe around 2030 Mm -hmm. And but that's a recovery, and then it's going to be a relatively smaller growth rate decade by decade. The reasons for that are quite simple. Three or four or five things that go into this. Uh, the first is Boeing and IATA have to project four percent compounded annual growth rates, or they won't get investments. Right. You, so they that's a but, financing and debt management requirement for them to be optimistic. So that's statement one. But wait, one second, if uh, if I'm not wrong, you made this projection right when we're still in the uh, pandemic dip is that right yep. uh are you still standing by that projections having seen how the, all this kind of rebound we have seen in the sure. latest months well, let, let's uh, articulate this again is okay. that um uh, i was a uh, a road warrior for a global tech company mm -hmm. there was a period of three years where every week i was on a plane to some other city in canada or the united states um In 2003, I crossed the border from Canada to the United States. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, 23 times, right? So yes. uh, I was a business traveler. Now, that's 20% of all flights are business travel flights. They've all gone away. The vast majority of business travel is now conducted just as we're having this discussion through Zoom. Um, I, I used to work with teams who would fly in from various places on Sunday work through Thursday, fly home, work remotely one day Thursday, or work 10-hour days or 12-hour days for the four days. And the clients we had always disliked that. Uh, the clients disliked that because it was expensive, but there wasn't really an alternative that anybody thought was acceptable. Now, COVID has completely proven that remote teams working on those transformational efforts and those types of consulting efforts they used to do are completely fine. For two reasons. One is every every client is in hybrid mode, so half or three quarters of their team is working remotely most of the week. Um, and secondly, they've had just as much success as they did before. Dubious question there. Um, with that, now I've had this conversation with uh, consulting leaders for PwC and other people, you know, who I used to work with, and we're all laughing, you know, because we know um, for a lot of the juniors, they really love that road warrior thing. You know, they like to be able to, there's a status to say. Yeah, I was in Boston this week, and I, I spent the weekend in Manhattan, actually, because I didn't feel like flying back to the West Coast. You know, that's a great lifestyle for a certain class of mostly people who aren't married um, and don't have kids. Um, but that's not coming back because the clients aren't going to pay for it. So a lot of business travel, that 20% of business travel isn't coming back. Secondarily, um, I've flown recently the um, security theater around 9-11 is now doubled with security theater from COVID. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of sit there and go, there's a much greater barrier to travel for a lot of people. Third, a lot of people got out of the habit of travel. Travel is a habit as much as anything else. They got into the habit of staycations. They got into the habit of traveling locally. They got into the habit of doing other things. And so that, that's 
one set of things, I mean, the, the recovery from COVID is not going to be nearly as big as people hope in the industry. Um, right. There's kind of three or four factors there. So that's the recovery. I still I still stand by that projection, but I am waiting for, you know, 2023, 2024 to compare my curves versus the actual curves in the industry. And then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll adjust when I actually have some data. I, I'm very Bayesian in that regard. You know, you, you're you're an economics major. You've undoubtedly studied Bayesian um, statistical theories. I've got some priors. I think they're pretty good, but I'm going to test against the mm-hmm. data. And I'll get some posteriors, which will become the new priors, and I'll adjust. And as yeah. I said in my, all, I said on all my projections, big error bars. This yeah, is yeah. logical. It's reasonable. Here's my reasoning. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Well, such, such a long period of time, it's uh, okay. by, by nature <laughs> difficult to project because, I mean, yeah. we don't know. We, there might be other black swans. There might be other, I don't know, completely lots of things can happen. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to stop you there because I take every t- chance I get to say, uh, Walker's Gray Rhino is vastly superior as a risk management framework uh, than Taleb's Black Swan. The Black Swan thing is mostly was adopted because of timing. He was lucky in his timing of publishing it around 2008, and it gave a whole bunch of people an excuse for not for refusing to pay attention to the gray rhino of the subprime mortgage debacle. Um, it gave a lot of people air cover to say, oh, I couldn't have seen it coming because it was a black swan, and it wasn't. The failures of the United States subprime mortgage was not a black swan, and most, the vast majority of the risks we face are not black swans. An asteroid hitting us, even that's not a black swan. They're gray rhinos. They're large, looming threats with uncertain times and implications when they hit. We don't know. We're we're struggling to do that. But I advise you and everybody else to read Walker's Gray Rhinos and ignore black swan events because it's not a useful framework. Okay. So So, what what would be the reference work to to check this framework? What would uh, be the book? the gray rhino, you know, gray rhino is like okay. the words gray rhino. It's a book. It's on risk management by um, somebody or other Wooker. I'm bad with names. Okay, I'll, I'll w- check it. W W U C K E R. I'll check um, it out and I will add it to the to the show notes so that yep. people. And I'll definitely add it to my list. That pile where there's the <laughs> the thing fast and slow as well. Uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> but as pending. we project forward. But as we project forward, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I'm I'm into climate solutions. Climate climate change is a massive gray rhino. We've known it's been coming. Um, CO2 was first isolated in the 1830s. The experiments to prove it was a warming gas were conducted in the 1850s. Arrhenius wrote the first paper asserting the likelihood of warming uh, in the 1890s. He's his calculations were pretty accurate by the mm-hmm. way. And, you know, as we move forward in the 70s, when we started putting up satellites in significant numbers and doing satellite um, data assessments, by the early 80s, it was a certainty. And yet here we are in 2022. Um, and still, there are deniers, there are delayers, there's significant misinformation we're, that's imposing upon our all too human brains. And we're, we've been ignoring the gray rhino of climate change more than not. And so as I project forward, climate change is one of those gray rhinos. Population um, demographics is another one. Um, So I I track global population trends uh, fairly closely. Right now, what we're looking at is uh, peak population from 2070 to 2100, right? And so as my projection for the last quarter of the century 
Um, part of that is we're not seeing increased demand from population. And even by 2040 and 2050, we'll be seeing decreased population growth. And so a lot of the growth that we've been seeing over the past, you know, 100 years for aviation has been because we've had this exponential growth of people. Right. Yeah. And so uh, then what, I, I look at, sorry, go ahead. What do you think it's going to be the, the peak population for the planet? Uh, it, somewhere between eight and 11 or somewhere between nine, approaching 10, 9.7 and 11 billion. Are we now at eight already or? Uh, seven just and... under eight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Seven, seven something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. and so that's one trend. Another trend, though, is increasing affluence. When Gro Brundtland put towards a sustainable future on the table with the United Nations in around 82 or so, uh, 1982, we've been working on the population problem longer and more seriously than we've been working on climate change, partly because a big part of, the pro of solving population growth is make people wealthy, mm -hmm. or at least make them affluent, get them out of subsistence poverty. Right now, we have about 650 million people still on the face of the earth, living on less than $2.15 United States um, currency per day, right? That's the absolute bottom of the, the poverty level. Um, and by the way, that's 2 billion fewer than there were in 1980. So okay. population growth is flattening, and so demand will flatten from that. More affluent people will want to travel more, however, right? Yeah. So as we look at increased affluence, But where is that likely to occur? That's likely to occur in the emerging economies. Um, and let's just take China as the obvious example of that. You know, they have taken um, 850 million people out of poverty in the past 44 years with their economic transformation. Um, a, a big part of why we have a lot fewer poor people, actually poor people, subsistence farmers in the, in the world. But they've also built 40,000 kilometers of high-speed electric, electric freight and passenger rail, grid tied. Um, and so, you know, as they all move around, um, you know, the uh, um, their new year, which is a big time for travel home to their, you know, regional, their local villages, to be with family, to do those things, um, they're overwhelmingly going by electric-powered ground transportation. Uh, I think they had uh, 3 billion passenger trips around that period, over that two-week period in 2019 before the shutdown. Um, and so, you know, the, the rest of the world is looking at um, aviation differently than we did in many cases, um, you know, especially because, you know, it's actually, in me, you know, uh, having, you know, taken the train a bunch of times myself, I really do love the lack of security theater on trains, um, you know. And well, so... It depends, huh? because, for example, um, in, in here in Spain, for example, where I think we have like the second or third largest high-speed network in the world, and uh, the, I think that the still it's kind of the experience is not not so different from taking a plane. I think in in the sense that uh, they they check uh, that's for a high speed. I mean, if you take a normal mm. normal train, not so <laughs> not so, sure. but. Uh, But but yeah, uh, that uh, depends. Sometimes sometimes can be like be like that. Or the Eurostar, if you've yeah. taken the Eurostar, yeah, that's the thing. You don't need to go to the airport outside the city. That's true. You you just yeah. drive in and uh, you're there. But, yeah, uh, I, I I when I was uh, taking the train out to Ottawa, you know, uh, regularly, I would you know rollerblade down to the station in Union mm -hmm. Station, 
and I'd take off my rollerblades and I'd walk onto the train, right? Yeah, just yeah. Mm-hmm. Much, much easier. But so there's a different class of transportation which is coming in the in the emerging world, which is uh, different than what we see here. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's thing one. Thing three, uh, autonomous vehicles for shorter haul sleeping trips. Like um, right now, it's like a five uh, a five six hour journey for me to get to Montreal from Toronto. Let's just take those two major Canadian cities, which something I used to do all the time. Um, but a car that drives itself and you can sleep in it and you start at midnight and you get there at 6 a.m. and you go and have a nice coffee and a croissant is a very different experience. So there's various things like that. The last major articulated trend I'll, I'll assert is higher costs. For the next several decades, aviation is going to cost more. You know, as we refuel, nothing is as cheap as fossil fuels that we are um, can use with the atmosphere being treated as an open sewer. As soon as we start pricing fossil fuel, jet fuel, and we're actually getting out of that, I, I did an assessment. Uh, you mentioned Joseph Maurice earlier. He'd actually exposed me to the really weird taxation around Jet A1. Yeah, and, I wanted uh, to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, Joseph Maurice of uh, Electron. By the way, I think I mentioned yep. the company, but not not him yep. personally. But yeah, I will I will add a link as well to the show notes to that episode so that people can check that very interesting project out of the Netherlands an electric plane. But I just wanted to ask you about that because you've got a post, a recent post actually, on Clean Technica, I think, where you mention you said it's a high likelihood that the European Union, Canada, not so much the US, are going to start taxing conventional jet fuel more heavily. And that's mm-hmm. going to translate into pretty much a doubling of the cost. But we have that effect on one side. But then we also have all these kind of alternatives, things like new forms of electrically power, regional air mobility, for example. And I'm not referring specifically here to eVTOLs, but other mm-hmm. other types of aircraft like, the, for example, the Electron or yep. other types of planes. So, aerospace, yep. So yeah, uh, um, yeah I, I'm with you on that, that the cost will increase when it comes to all these conventional fuels and, and internalizing some of these costs. But, but at the same time, we also have new forms of air transportation that are developing. So could it be that maybe overall... If we take air transport overall, is this included in your projections as well? So if we now have, let's say in in a couple of decades, we have very cheap electric regional aircraft, for example, that can move to all these different local airports, as some of these entrepreneurs are are promising, would that count as well on your projections? Or that would be a separate, you consider that a separate market? No, no, I I consider it the same market. Um, so the reality of um, so I'm I'm very bullish on electric conventional takeoff and landing aircraft. Um, mm-hmm. The entire urban air mobility and electric VTOL market is complete and utter nonsense. Um, it makes no sense. From there is no market. There is no you know the the battery energy density isn't there, um, and there's no path to regulatory provision for these vehicles. It's just complete and utter hype and nonsense. But the electric conventional takeoff and landing stuff like Electron, like Hart have a lot of legs, but they're also going to be a tiny niche of the global market for a long time. A lot of the um, the vast majority of the, the passenger market right now is hub and spoke uh, turbojets, you know, mm-hmm. burning Jet A1. And they're incredibly efficient devices. I mean, the, the at 30,000 feet at optimal cruising altitude, um, it's like 55% efficient, which is astounding efficiency for these big, modern, amazing jet engines. It's going to take a while for that to transition out. Um, electric will not be suitable for um, you know, cross-continent transportation for 
quite a while and it won't be a suitable my, my projection intercontinental transportation is going to be viable around 2060 2070 with battery electric um with some you know and there's some guesses some big fudging errors in there uh, and that means that it's only in 2100 that we're down to the point where there's a tiny fraction of planes burning fuel versus just burning electrons mm-hmm. right but that's a transition over decades and mm-hmm. it starts out um exactly as you pointed out in short hop regional air mobility, which is a diminished market substantially because the economics of those massive jet engines require they spend as much time in the air as possible. Because when they're when they're on the runway, you're basically just pouring Jet A1 on the runway. Yeah. You know, if they're taxiing, it's just a complete efficiency nightmare. Which is why I'm you know really appreciative of the people who are moving towards electric ground tugs for as long as possible and you know electric tenders and electric auxiliary power for jets so they don't have to run their engines as long on the ground but the point is it's a long transition um and so statement one in the beginning like the first planes out of the uh, the gate heart or electron or others in that space are going to be more capital expensive because their batteries are expensive right now still right? Having sufficient batteries to fly people around. The electricity is, you know, as, as right now in uh, Europe, where um, Jet A1 was, ex- or, and Avgas were excluded from the, uh, the ETS, the carbon pricing, um, you know, up until very recently, it was more expensive to run an electric plane for the same distance than to fill it up with Jet A1 because of this weird loophole for gas prices. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that's changing more and more of the aviation. They actually changed, since I did that that assessment, they actually changed the rules again to make them a bit more stringent. Um, Because one of the things that a lot of these jurisdictions are doing is they're saying, well, for domestic flights, we're going to put them on exchange rate. But if they go across borders, well, we can't. Because we'll, and I think that's a competition thing, you know, um, especially in, in Europe where everything is so close together and there's high speed yeah. trains and stuff. It would, you know, if you, if one country, say, let's pick a medium sized country, let's say the Netherlands, right? Mm-hmm. Surrounded by other things. The Netherlands is not too big. Uh, but if they said, well, all domestic and foreign flights were going to tax the jet fuel, people would say, well, let's service Denmark, Germany, and France. And drop reduce our service to the Netherlands, just because of the cost implications. Um, fuel costs right now are about nineteen percent of the average uh, passenger jetliner's uh, annual expenses. It's a very significant expense, mm-hmm. and so you know you kind of look look at that. So there's these changes that are coming in that are going to make electric not more competitive. But right now, in Canada and the United States and other jurisdictions in Europe. Jet fuel is so damn cheap and so undertaxed that it is really hard to compete economically with it. Now, as we move forward, um, what's going to happen is that, um, you know, initial batteries, when I had this conversation with Anders Forslund a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and talked about the initial the, thought for hard aerospace. Yeah, the founder of, of hard aerospace, in, in case yeah. the, someone in the audience has those that are not familiar with the name, but one of, one of yeah. the interesting projects in the field of electric aircraft so yeah just short parenthesis so <laughs> yeah um brilliant guy brilliant guy and absurdly well educated absurdly knowledgeable um but he and i were discussing that the battery isn't something that concerns us 
everybody talks about the energy density of batteries, but I've spent so much time looking at batteries and as has he, that we know it's just an engineering compromise space. What weight do you need? What energy density do you need? How much can you afford? You can find a battery that does those things. Can you certify it as a separate question? Um, but right now what we're at is a point where, you know, Tesla lithium ion batteries are completely fit for purpose for two to 400 kilometer flights for the planes designed for those things. Like the Pipistrel was actually a gas plane that they put a battery uh, engine in. Uh, aviation is a different thing. The electron explicitly is got a longer wings, higher aspect ratio. It's more glider-esque for the passenger numbers to give it more range at a slightly lower speed, right? So it mm -hmm. enables to the, the flight characteristic as an engineering choice. You know, right now what we don't have is battery energy density to, um, you know, do what we've done with uh, 50, you know, airframes that are 50 years old, like, a, you know, six times. We can't just rip out the drivetrain, put in batteries and electric motor and get good range, right? That's still a very much a case where an, something designed for an internal, you know, a, a, a gas turbine engine and tanks in the wings, it just doesn't work well for batteries. It's just a very different type of beast. And so right now, what we're going to see, though, is, I mean, special airframes like hearts, electrons, aviation, which means all the tulip costs are there for a smaller number of units, which means more expensive per unit. The batteries are going to be more expensive, right? And so the capital costs for the next decade or so are going to be significantly, sufficiently higher than a gas turbine standard um, engine, you know, something from Cirrus or uh, something like that, that it's not going to be that much cheaper. What it's going to be is more convenient as we activate those small regional air airfields. And it's going to give us the ability to, you know, just take a, uh, Let's just take uh, the really interesting case of Toronto. There's mm -hmm. Buttonville Airport, which is, you know, up near closer to Barrie than not. And then there's the Island Airport, the Billy Bishop Airport. Yeah. And an electric, a little electric commuter plane going between those two would be a fast, you know, a really nice thing for a lot of people to get to the downtown core in an efficient and effective way. Last, I actually flew out of Billy Bishop two weeks ago. I walked over there from the downtown core. It's accessible. So mm -hmm. the point, though, is that those are transformational things. They're new routes. They're different routes. They take some current air taxi stuff and they transform it. Um, but they're not necessarily going to be they, they have advantages for operational and maintenance stuff um, that is really nice. But they're not necessarily going to be cheaper immediately. As we move forward in time, uh, 20 years from now, batteries are going to be cheaper, lighter, higher density. And then at that point, electric aviation starts to become significantly cheaper than the alternative, especially as, but Jet A1 and uh, Avgas are going to be taxed. They're going to be, there's going to be a carbon price put upon them. So the carbon price goes up, the capital cost changes the equation. Um, and then as we move forward, battery electric gets cheaper, but it's still not going to cross continents. Yeah. So we're still going to be burning fuels to cross continents through 2100. When we do that, we're going to be doing it with uh, biofuels, my projection, as we discussed earlier, um, for the simple reason that that is actually cheaper than any synthetic fuel and any opportunity for a synthetic fuel to be manufactured from you know core molecules. We can talk about that if you really want to nerd out. Um, we have the carrying capacity for that. It's still got problems of N2O. We still have to do uh, contrail management, which is pretty easy. It turns out, you know, it's like 
pretty easy to change the flight operational characteristics to reduce uh, contrails by 80%. Yeah, so that's good news. But biofuels are still going to always be more expensive than kerosene we've just yanked out of the ground and dumped into the atmosphere without abatement. But even at the scale, I, I know we shouldn't be hopeful that things are going to happen. <laughs> like all of a sudden, like a sort of Deus Ex Machina will come in, into the scene and, and change things. But but in 80 years, are we totally positive? Well, positive. Are, we, are we totally sure that we're not going to have some breakthrough in first in battery technology, then in the ability of the sustainable aviation fuel industry to reduce costs by producing at scale, maybe finding new processes. Um, again, I'm, I'm not saying here that the fate of the industry should be dependent on being hopeful that this will happen eventually. But in 80 years, I mean, if we look at other industries, how the learning curve has evolved and like computing, for example, in the last 80 years, going from these super huge mainframes to having like several million times more powerful computers that are fit in your pocket. Could something like this happen in batteries? Could something like this happen in, in biofuels? Well, let's start with batteries. Uh, my projections through 2100 assume that we make absurd numbers of breakthroughs in electrochemistry and batteries, mm. um, right? Um, my projection um, for cross for intercontinental flights with battery electric require um, that the batteries are vastly better and lighter than they are today. Um, you know, and I, I believe that's entirely viable, but it's a weakness that is a risk that it could not occur, right? There's the reason I assert that, that we have um, significant opportunity for that is simply because of the vast amount of research going into battery technology today. My work with you know world-class electrochemists at Agora, my assessment of some of those technologies, do I know exactly what we're going to end up with? No. And the people say, well, which exact technology is going to be able to do that? I said, no, why are you know. asking me that? Yeah, yeah, we don't know. But can... if, if we don't get that breakthrough, we don't get electric aviation between continents. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's statement one. Yeah. Uh, statement two, biofuels are agriculture. It still requires a lot of energy and a lot of stuff to be processed and a lot of you know, fermentation vats and a lot of stuff. Uh, biofuels are going to get cheaper, but they're never going to be as cheap as stuff where the, the they, like biofuels, the, the, there's kind of those three things, right? Um, fossil fuels, the world did all the work for us and we just do the last 10% of the work. Right, yeah. just refine them and distribute them. Um, for biofuels, the world is doing fifty percent of the work for us, yeah. but we have to do the other fifty percent. We have to gather all these things from a great land area, pull them into concentrated areas, process them, upgrade them. Because kerosene, we actually just fractionate the petroleum barrel. We pull off the stuff that has the right characteristics for jet fuel. But for um, ethanol, from a biomass. We actually have to upgrade that to get it to the point where it's a kerosene equivalent. Mm -hmm. What about synthetic? Um, so synthetic is broken because we're doing everything. We're not getting nature to do anything for us. So I've done the math on this a few times, and I've talked to experts like Paul Martin and other global people. Now I, I get I, I did a report on Northern African <clears throat> hydrogen uh, for Europe recently. Because actually, the European European Union <clears throat> refuel uh, initiative. <clears throat> Uh, basically puts a lot of faith in the development of the synthetic yeah, fuel uh, industry. <laughs> no. So so let's talk it through. Let's talk through yeah. the, the mm -hmm. value stream. Because I did the math on this the first time when I was looking at carbon engineering's uh, synthetic fuel claims um, in 2018. And nothing's changed since then. It's not like it's rocket science. 
The biggest driver of costs for synthetic fuels is the cost of manufacturing hydrogen. The only way we can make hydrogen, which is actually a climate solution, is we make it from green, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen requires renewables. And so one of the things that people project in terms of hydrogen costs is, let's say, we can get power purchase agreements for $20 US or $30 US, and therefore that's the number I'm going to plug in for my hydrogen manufacturing. Except those um, PPAs are in context of a major grid with a whole bunch of other components. So they have transmission, they have distribution, they have management software, they have grid utility, they have backup, they have a whole bunch of stuff. And that solar or, or wind thing is not the only price adder. That enables us, like you in your office in Barcelona, me in my home office in Vancouver, to have our lights on, to be communicating through the internet with um, a balanced, firmed electricity, <clears throat> right? An entire web of stuff we just don't pay attention to because electricity is ubiquitous. Um, but in order for us to have that firmed electricity, we have to have all those different components providing that firmed electricity. Yeah, And that means we're going to end up paying commercial rates for electricity, regardless of anything else. If you try to go it alone, let's just take an example. Let's take um, the Maghreb region of, um, you know, uh, of Northern Africa, Yeah, you know, um, Algeria, parts mm -hmm. of Egypt. And let's just take the desert area there. And let's pretend we're going to just build an electrolysis plant in the desert. We're going to pipe in water and we're going to desalinate it, which is a minor part of the cost. But if you build it, then it's not on a grid. That means you have to build all those capabilities of the grid. You have to build a lot of storage. You have to build a lot of wind, a lot of solar. You have to build them in a dispersed area, or you have to spend a lot of money on storage. One way or another, you end up in the 90 to $100 per megawatt range for the cost of electricity, right? Now, that's for firmed electricity. And the requirement for firmed electricity is really simple. An electrolysis plant, an industrial-scale electrolysis plant, is not just the electrolyzer. It's um, probably 28 major industrial components and the electrolyzers. And those other components do things like they de, um, they remove vapor from the hydrogen. They purify the water uh, before it enters the electrolysis chamber. They pump things. They compress things. They deal with thermal management, which is a major problem with hydrogen. And so you look at this industrial scale plant, it's a major capital cost. And only one of the costs is the high cost electrolyzers. Everything else around that is already an industrial commodity that we make tens or hundreds of thousands of a year and use in other plants. We're not building unique pumps or unique de uh, dehumidifiers for hydrogen. We're just going to use stuff that already exists and is already common. Electrolyzers themselves, proton exchange membrane or alkaline electrolyzers, um, are really well-known technology. We've actually built a lot of them as it is. We haven't built millions of them, so we are going to get some cost takeouts, but they're well-understood technology, and they're not the type of thing, uh, there's aspects of them that are not as susceptible to transformational cost reductions as people assume. So the electrolyzers are not going to get quite as cheap as people assume, but they're going to be surrounded by a lot of other stuff that isn't going to get cheaper. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a chemical plant. It's a chemical processing plant. Chemical processing plants, the components have been highly iterated by massive deployment of chemical processing plants globally. And so that means the capital cost component is not going to diminish nearly as much as the people who like the idea of hydrogen and don't do the math assume. And then the electricity is not going to be as cheap either. 
with a high capital cost component, you need to run it 24-7, 365, as high a utilization factor as possible in order to defray the capital cost across the units of production. Mm -hmm. Um, If you say, okay, we're only going to make hydrogen when the sun shines or the wind blows, and you have a 50% utilization, that means your capital cost is double per unit of production. And so your price of hydrogen goes way up. Um, if you actually assume high utilization factors, you're at 90 or $100 per megawatt hour for electricity, and your price of hydrogen goes way up because the cost of electricity is higher. You actually have to assume you have very cheap electrolyzers in very cheap plants running on 20 to $30 per megawatt hour electricity in order to get anywhere near these projections of costs that people are making about hydrogen. They are um, economically fallacious. In some cases, they are intentional disinformation. In other cases, they're just people who haven't done the math and haven't thought through it. But every time we start looking at actual real-world case studies, what we find is this carries out. The capex is not going to reduce as much. The operational costs are going to be higher because the cost of electricity will be higher. Therefore, the hydrogen will not be nearly as cheap as people assume. And if hydrogen isn't cheap, which is the biggest cost of synthetic fuels, then the synthetic fuels are going to persist in being very expensive. Now, I used um, a benchmark study that said we'd get the manufacturing cost of green hydrogen down to uh, $5 US per kilogram, which is pretty reasonable, right? We're going to, that's actually a, uh, not an, un, that's a, that's a, it's not too conservative. It's not too advanced. It's still a lot cheaper than it is today. So that's what I used in 2018 when I did the math on this. We might get down to four. We're not going to get down to one. It's just a, a fantasy to believe that we'll break the laws of the universe. Because we really are, with electrolyzers right now, approaching the efficiency limits of thermodynamics. You can't make them magically better. It's just there's there's reality there. And, and it's reality in a very different way than our advances in battery technologies where we have new stuff to play with, right? We are literally really have significantly advanced electrolyzers technically now. Just making them bigger won't make them magically cheaper. So mm-hmm. that means hydrogen stays expensive, right? Hydrogen is going to be expensive. That means that then we have to get CO2 from somewhere, which is pretty easy. It's fairly ubiquitous. Uh, direct air capture is the stupidest idea since, I don't know, leaded gasoline. Uh, so <laughs> that's not going to be providing that uh, uh, carbon. But it's easy to get carbon. I mean, as I say to people, you want CO2? Burn some biomass. Capture do flu capture. We have flu capture. We've been capturing CO2 from flu gases in industrial processes. Well, we do that in the, actually in the, um, in the solvate process. We've actually been mm-hmm. capturing CO2, as I said, since 1830. We know how to capture CO2. We, it's it's a very easy. Burn some biomass, get some CO2. And so getting the CO2 is easy, but it has some cost. The hydrogen is very expensive. But to combine them, with oxygen from the atmosphere into a carbohydrocarbon, then you have to upgrade it. And every step you upgrade it, you end up with these. And then you've got all these massive efficiency losses, right? Yeah. As you know, you, you had the conversation with uh, Tom Vorman the other day, and he was mm-hmm. talking about you know getting hydrogen and actually getting it into a useful place. You'll throw away tons of your electricity. And that's true for the CO2. And then you have this process of combining them where you have to put energy in to combine them then you have to upgrade them. You have to put energy in to upgrade them. And so synthetic fuels, because they throw away all of nature's help, means that we have to do everything nature does for us for free, and it's not going to be cheaper. It's just what it's a it's a false belief that we're going through a period right now. 
So many interesting points here. I'm not going to ask to uh, to dig deeper into this carbon uh, carbon capture thing because I'm sure that that would be enough for a, a whole new episode or maybe a series of episodes, which can be done maybe but another day. Also not but, also not aviation related. Yeah, exactly. But right, very interesting anyway. When it comes to aviation, synthetic fuels say are going to remain expensive. How the economics compare to the current setup if we use this hydrogen directly? As a as a fuel, as uh, another whole branch of the sustainable aviation industry is proposing, uh, we have companies like Airbus now uh, going strong on hydrogen. Uh, other companies, startups that are also uh, well, basically saying that hydrogen is is the is the future for aviation. What's your view? What's your take on on hydrogen as a fuel? Not not so much as a as a component of uh, to make. Synthetic fuel, uh, so just taking the hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, we're assuming, and just uh, yeah, loading into plane, loading it into planes, and and using it as a as a fuel. Uh, it's dumb as a box of rusted purple hammers. So a, it's going to stay expensive. So it's not mm -hmm. going to be a cheap fuel. But b, so there's um, uh, aviation. Uh, hydrogen is this amazingly energy dense by mass gas, but it's not energy dense by volume. Yeah. As a gas, it has insanely little density. So you ever seen one of those hydrogen cylinders about, you know, uh, 1.8 meters high, big steel round? Mm -hmm. One of those contains about 0.8 kilograms of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's as gaseous hydrogen. Yeah. Um, it's insane. You have to build this massive uh, infrastructure and you have to compress it to 750 atmospheres for electric, uh, for fuel cell cars, for example, to get, you know, four or five kilograms of hydrogen, which is equivalent of four or five gallons of gas, which is equivalent to about 20, 25 liters of gas. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, we're not going to be using gaseous hydrogen. Instead, mm -hmm. what we need to do is cryogenically chill it so that it's a much less, um, uh, much denser Fuel. Yeah, but that At requires that we minus two hundred and fifty-three degrees, something like that, Celsius, something like that. Uh, yeah, it's like twenty-four degrees Kelvin, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll put this in our our terms. That's about two hundred and ninety-four degrees Celsius. Negative. No, what is it? Two hundred, two hundred, yeah, two hundred and seven, yeah, two hundred ninety-four degrees colder than we like it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you're probably, yeah. you're in your t-shirt there. You're probably at 20, 21, 22 degrees Celsius in your apartment. Yeah. You're, you're, you're comfortable. Right. Um, so that's statement one. It has to be really cold and that's an dangerously, absurdly cold. Mm -hmm. um, when we, when we uh, liquefy natural gas, natural gas is about a, you know, it's, it's, it has to be three times colder than liquefied natural gas. It doesn't like to liquefy. Mm -hmm. And then when it's liquefied, it really likes to turn back into a gas at the little slightest excuse. It's called boil off, where you have these um, things where it just basically it sublimates into gas. Boom, it's done. Um, and so that means that you've got this thing, this container, and you have to maintain the temperature inside the container yep. at 24 degrees Kelvin. Um, so that's kind of the next thing there. You have to have this super chilled container. And it has to be as round as possible. It has to be as close to ball-shaped as possible. Because the further away you get from ball-shaped, the less insulation something provides. So that means that ball shape, you can't put it in the wings as we do with Jet A1 today, right? And there's a, I'll get to mean gross takeoff weight in a second, because that's an important thing that Bernard Van Giek um, talks about. 
but you can't put it in the wings. That means you have to put these as close to ball shaped, super chilled containers inside the fuselage. What else is inside the fuselage? The people, human beings. Yeah. <laughs> so you have yeah. to put these massive mm-hmm. ball shaped things. At minimum, they're going to take up twenty. I, I did the math on this and I did the calculations mm-hmm. to get kind of somewhat equivalent range. You're taking away twenty percent or more of the fuselage space for any conventional airframe. Yeah. And that means you're taking away 20% of the um, passengers and 20% or 20% of freight. And you have more expensive fuel. So you kind of d- look at that and you, you go from 19% to 50% of your costs are hydrogen if you choose to do this. But then we get to the mean gross takeoff weight. The mean gross takeoff weight for an airplane is a specific calculation that you have to go through and it has the fuel loading and the passenger loading. You have to balance everything out. Um, But right now, the large majority of the mass of the fuel is supported in the wings, not in the fuselage. So no current airframe and no current airframe engineering is designed for having empty wings and the mass of stuff in there. So your mean gross takeoff weight, the available weight for fuel or passengers drops or for passengers or freight drops even more, right? So you end up with these in a lot of calculations where you'd be able to run a, fly a plane today, you can't. So all these claims of massive distances either have no freight or no passengers or they're bogus. And so there's a lot of bogus calculations going around about hydrogen in aviation. What about then all the, let's say, all, all the projects that are right now underway? For example, here in the podcast, we had uh, people from Universal Hydrogen, for example, that yep. are uh, designing this uh, capsule system that they define well, as no, sort I've, of a... I've looked at it. It's completely, it's complete nonsense in terms of creating a, um, an aviation fuel stream. Um, it, it's physically and economically non-viable, and I don't know why anybody pays any attention to this stuff. It, but, it but, really is, it does boggle my mind. But what about the... There's a lot of really bright people who know STEM. That's what I was about to ask. What about the airlines that have ordered it? Because uh, the airlines are normally quite, quite good at I would say, well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that but they, they got people crunching numbers and kind of optimizing every aspect of their operation. So I'm sure they they might have done some calculations there and got yeah, well, some positive results. Let me ask the question. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you know the fossil fuel industry loves hydrogen, right? Mm-hmm. And they promote green hydrogen every chance they get. I heard that. Right? Yeah. Um, is that because the fossil fuel industry is going to get into the green hydrogen business? I don't know. Some of them do, I guess. No, no. It, no? It's, Michael Liebrich says it best. Michael Liebrich, who's yep. the, um, how to be an AF. Yeah, I take this opportunity as well to recommend his Twitter account and, and podcast. Michael Liebrich says it best. He says, the fossil fuel industry can't lose by promoting hydrogen. They have all the STEM people too. They knew that climate change was real in the 2070s or in the 1970s, in the 1980s, they got that. And what did they choose to do? They choose to delay, deny, and spread disinformation to perpetuate their business model. It's, remember, I did say that corporations were sociopaths. Um, <laughs> um, many of the people inside those industries are in deep grievance in their uh, and you know shame in their retirement years, and many of them are still choosing to not in denial. But hydrogen is a no-lose situation for the fossil fuel industry because blue hydrogen will always be cheaper than green hydrogen. You know, it's cheaper to do SMR and accept upstream methane emissions, which make it really problematic. 
than it is to do green hydrogen. I've done the math on this. I did the comparison for the Northern African countries. If the fossil fuel industry convinces everybody to use hydrogen as a source of energy, as a carrier of energy, then they know that green energy won't uh, green hydrogen can't scale quickly or cheaply. Blue hydrogen will be cheaper, and they'll, their um, fossil fuel reserves, where all the hydrogen today comes from, will actually maintain value. If they can't convince people, their fossil fuel reserves diminish in value every year for the next 50 years until there's nothing and they go bankrupt. Um, so they have to pretend that hydrogen is a future fuel. Um, if they don't, all they do is, and they convince a bunch of people to spend a lot of time and money trying to make hydrogen a future fuel, then they win by deferring and delaying real action for another decade. And so either way, the fossil fuel industry wins, which is Liebrich's point. Um, now, let's look at the uh, aviation industry. Um, you, like me, um, are a close observer and talk to a lot of people in the industry. What actual efforts towards decarbonization has IATA actually done or any airline actually done that is more than a rounding error? And PR. I will have the chance to ask that to, uh, <laughs> to the people at IATA that are are uh, well, basically working on the in this field because we are talking to have an episode soon about this topic. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the answer is, and they will give you a really nice song and dance. But right now, the aviation industry is trying to delay action as long as possible. They're doing some good stuff. They're doing some good preparatory stuff. Like uh, most mm -hmm. of the OEMs are certifying um, their air, aircraft, rotorcraft, and you know jet engines on uh, SAF biofuels, uh, which have been around since 2011 or so. Um, but they're still more expensive. And, you know, they've been flying blended or uh, full bio. I think they just, in the past month, did a, there was a flight that was actually all SAF biofuel, which is great. I get press releases pretty much every day. Like this airline has flown its first flight of sustainable aviation fuel. That airline has flown with that. It's different blend. Like, it's like constant, but to the point that I don't know if there is enough capacity right now in the market. Not right now. Uh, possibly not. Not oh, now. Okay. You are the one that has been crunching the numbers here. But but, um, but yeah, everyone is making commitments to sustainable aviation fuel, but the capacity is not there yet. So there's a bit of a rush now to kind of yep. develop all this and, capacity. And, which yeah. is great. Um, but yeah. um, the reality is that even though we've known about uh, the gray rhino of climate change and that aviation is a significant contributor to it for 40 years, the aviation industry has done virtually nothing about it, except for doing some engineering, doing some experiments, doing some greenwashing. That's the nature of the beast. OEMs are corporations. Corporations are sociopaths. They respond to um, hard fiscal incentives and hard fiscal punishments. And it's only, as we discussed earlier, that the price of aviation fuel is going to actually be taxed. Never mind actually carbon priced. You know, in, in Europe, it's actually going to be carbon priced. In Canada, it's going to be carbon priced below the level at which it needs to be. In the United States, it's not going to be carbon priced. You know, and so the corporations are now starting to respond because there's starting to be some fiscal signals that they have to change. But they haven't mm -hmm. done anything voluntarily and they won't. Yeah. And so, well, in, in the defense of the industry, though, it must be said that most of it has been busy trying to survive for most of its history. I mean, yeah, it, it's been, that's so true. I mean, if, if so they, many of those people get crappy bonuses, and I, I just really feel for but, them. <laughs> no, but Sorry, that, I'm, right, but what I'm saying is that unless they, they were forced to do it, it would be strange for shareholders would say, well, were you doing this? But we have razor thin margins, so you, you know, like. So all the all the incentives were against doing 
things that would deviate yep. from trying to kind of squeeze some some margin out of a, a business that chronically has hasn't been particularly profitable. Uh, I know, I know, it's a very utilitarian, uh, utilitarian. I, I'm argument, going to, but... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the following as carefully as I can. Um, it's a very rich industry that has been very successful at crying poverty along for hmm. its entire history, as it has grown quite substantially. So I, I only believe half of that story. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, there were a lot of bankruptcies from bad management and other things, and a lot of gray rhinos they're ignoring. They ignored the gray rhino. The point, though, is. Right now, the aviation industry is like the fossil fuel industry in that they need to show they're doing something. True. Yeah. And they right now, the big hype is hydrogen for energy. There's lots of fiscal incentives and grants and money that can be had. There's a bunch of engineers. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this very carefully. I know and love engineers. I know a lot of engineers, even engineers who get that hydrogen is a complete and utter waste of time as a carrier of energy have been seduced into doing lots of hydrogen projects because they're interesting. They're technically complex. They're challenging. And they get money and attention because they're doing something that is currently hyped. It's exciting. It's also complete waste of those talents' time for many of the fields that they're looking at. Um, I'll, 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 we, we mentioned the EVT oil space. I'll tell you a little yeah. story. I, I know you are just a, a, a warning here if, because I know possibly many EVTOL fans are, are following this podcast. Uh, you are very, very critical with the EVTOL, the whole EVTOL industry. Oh, yeah. yeah? It's because yeah. it's, it's, it's nonsense <laughs> from the ground up. It's a Jetsons fantasy. Um, that said, let's talk, talk about the precursors mm -hmm. of the EVTOL fad. Mm -hmm. um, many of the thought leaders, many of the founders of many of the companies started out in airborne wind energy. Do you know what airborne wind energy is? No. Okay. It's a bad idea that doesn't make sense, but it's fun to do engineering in, um, where you take kites um, and you fly them through the air. And because mm -hmm. you have no mast and you have an airfoil, which is flying faster than the wind, you have a lot of power. And so you end up with people saying, oh, I should be able to harness this for electricity. This was first proposed in 1940. The first white paper was published um, with a DC-3 class wing in 1980. The first demonstration of the technology in a, a rotorcraft hovering situation, a tethered rotorcraft, was done. It was a very low, low to the ground um, thing. Was it 1986? And subsequently, it spread off into fabric airfoils like kite surfer airfoils. Um, hard wing airfoils like the Google Mechani, um, hard wing airfoil with turbines on the front, variants, generation on the ground, generation up in the air, proposals for, you know, jet stream uh, stuff. And there's a whole bunch of really fun engineering in there. There's a lot of, and uh, for a while, people were throwing money at it. Uh, Google bought a company called Mechani and enabled them to build a 600 uh, kilowatt generation prototype and fly it at least once in Hawaii. And so all these people got to stay, all these people who like kite surfing, got to hang out in places where there was a lot of water, a lot of wind, um, and they got to live in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And they got to do really interesting engineering. And it was a complete and utter engineering failure because and I did the engineering stuff. I, I still occasionally get signed PhD theses from University of Delft for people thanking me for asking a whole bunch of really good questions that enable them to do a PhD thesis mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I went and looked through the entire realm and said, it fails. This one fails for this reason. This one fails for this reason. Did the complete yeah. engineering analysis. And now fast forward to the EVTOL space. 
And about half of the people that were in the airborne wind energy space are in the EVTOL space. Okay. Um, I, I'm not going to name names, um, except that one of them was um, with NASA, originally in airborne wind energy, and he was you know, quite nasty to me about my publications at the time. And then he moved into the EVTL space in NASA, and then he went over to Uber to run their NASA, their um, uh, EVTL urban air mobility initial startup, which failed miserably, losing lots of money. And I kind of, Joby grew out of an airborne wind energy stuff. The McCanny people ended up going through airborne or through the EVTL space. And it's a whole bunch of the same people who get seduced by money and hype to do cool engineering, which is ultimately not of any value. And that's the airborne, that's the urban air mobility space. It requires, I mean, you know, Tom um, Vollmer was quite polite about the stacked black boxes in that space. Uh, My assertion is that he's underestimating certification, path certification for Joby is a billion dollars. The addressable, total addressable market is minuscule. Uh, I lived in uh, Sao Paulo for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sao Paulo at the time was 20 to 28 million people, depending on where you cut it. It was at the peak of Brazil's um, economic rise. It was just starting to go down the other side. So it had lots and lots of billionaires, lots and lots of deca millionaires and centimillionaires. It had lots of people with estates on the outskirts, had lots and lots of private helicopters, corporate and private. It had the most private, privately owned rotorcraft of any city in any country in the world when I was there. And there were only 750 of them. Mm -hmm. There was no, that was it, you know? And so these people were projecting they're going to have 4,000 of them or 10,000 of them are, I'm just going to say they're smoking crack or they're providing crack to their investors. So their investors will smoke it uh, because it makes no sense. Uh, This is literally, it was a jam packed um, roads it was an urban, massive urban area. Um, it was actually quite well-behaved drivers compared to Mexico, where I spent some time as well. Different aspect of Portuguese versus uh, Latino. You know, it's just a different mentality. Um, but there is no market for urban air mobility. There is no path to certification to fly autonomous vehicles, uh, large autonomous vehicles over children's in schoolyards. It, it makes no sense. Um, and there's many of the same people from the airborne wind energy a- a- arena, which made no sense, are in this. Now, some of them are actually saying, okay, now that I'm a mature and I, I know I can get money, I am actually going to do something that I think will actually deliver climate value. And so electric conventional takeoff and landing airplanes may uh, have climate value. You know, they're, they're going to start to displace and eat out the bottom of the larger aviation market and slowly be a significant part of the decarbonization story. So, but it's easy for Airbus to find people excited to work on hydrogen and the engineering stuff because it's got lots of hype. Oh, what do you do? Well, I'm working on hydrogen for Airbus. Oh, that's cool. Tell me about it. As opposed to I'm, you know, working on um, uh, batteries. Well, everybody's got batteries, but everybody's talking about hydrogen. So the point there is that right now the um, airline industry is still very much in the phase where they can get a lot of grants and a lot of hype and a lot of attention, a lot of governmental support for doing hydrogen, and they can get a lot of engineers excited about it. That doesn't mean it's meaningful. Um, They don't lose at all by putting a fraction of their um, revenues, a fraction of their profits to this hyped area. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of the story of the fossil fuel industry can't lose, the airline industry can't lose by doing this, except 
we we lose if the fossil fuel industry and the airline industry don't get their crap together. So, mm -hmm. so what what's your view on all this move towards the decarbonization of aviation? I mean, if we said the sustainable aviation fuels are going to remain expensive, EV tolls, uh, you say, are not an option, and batteries are going to be limited, and hydrogen doesn't make sense. Well, <laughs> what are we left with of the whole well, wave so, of uh, hype we have? Well, once again, though, um, remember I said that uh, aviation is going to be more expensive. Fuel costs are going mm -hmm. to be more expensive. And you know, while individual humans are irrational, as a mass, if we say that something's more expensive, demand will be diminished a bit, mm -hmm. right? It's like when you when you and I or I go and book a ticket and it costs 500 bucks more than it did, you know, a year ago or two years ago or, you know, in 2019 or 2018, we're going to say, hmm, what else could I do, right? It, as you kind of like compare and contrast some economic choices, well, my budget is 5,000 euros, but the flight and the hotel is going to be 6,000 euros. What are my other choices? Do I really want to spend the extra thousand euros, right? So, The cost of aviation is going to increase. Um, uh, you know, in Europe right now, as I said, they, uh, it's now aviation fuel. Jet A1 is now included or will be included. I think it starts next year in um, the exchange traded uh, uh, thing, the ETS. Uh, so it's going to be carbon priced effectively, which will cause it to go up. The sustainable aviation biofuels is an emerging commercialized market. So it has to grow. Uh, demand uh, uh, the Increased demand for that will cause the market to emerge globally, especially as Jet A1 increases and the price difference diminishes substantially, right? And, you know, when we actually price Jet A1 at the appropriate price from a carbon pricing perspective, then SAF biofuels look cheaper because they are, but they're still more expensive than Jet A1 was when we didn't tax it and didn't price it, right? Mm -hmm. So... The demand will still be there, but it'll be diminished because of additional costs. That's fine. Uh, electrification is proceeding. Um, Tom Vormer said 2030. I'm thinking it might be a little earlier. It depends. Because right now what I'm seeing is it's really dif difficult to get investors interested in electric conventional takeoff and landing gear with any money. Right, The SPACs and the other nonsense all went to the Jetsons fantasy hype and EVTOL, which is completely wasted. There isn't even any intellectual capital of any worth in there. So it's not like there's going to be anything that delivers value in the years following. Like X-Wing, for example, mm -hmm. and their autonomous stuff, that's great. They're doing exactly the right things. They're doing autonomous control systems, ground control plans. Uh, I, I've you know, spoken to Kevin Ancliffe a couple or three times. Great guy and great firm, but they didn't SPAC and they're getting a tiny amounts of funding. So you see a future for autonomous eVTOL then? Because of the, oh, uh, because of no, the lower cost? So when you say that, I say yes, in 2040 or 2050, there will okay. be an autonomous VTOL. Okay. Um, but autonomous cargo planes that actually are routed around any um, significant risk areas, like mm -hmm. over rural areas, avoiding schools, avoiding, et cetera, those will probably be certified for at least, I mean, um, X-Wing has already got um, certification for test flights with mm -hmm. observer pilots. And so... You know, Europe put in place what I think is a back uh, of the wrong thing, which is the corridors. But as we look forward, what we need is projection of three things, right? We need battery energy density and electric air, uh, airframes designed for batteries. Mm -hmm. And that's going to mature quite quickly. So 2035 will probably be 
well enough mature to do a lot of good stuff. We actually have sufficient energy density in reasonably priced batteries today to fly two to 400 kilometers if you can find a business model for it. It's mm -hmm. the business model, and Tom was right exactly on that point. The second thing is autonomous flight capabilities. There's a lot of autonomous flight capabilities. It's easier to do autonomous airplanes than it is to do autonomous cars. Um, there's just a lot fewer things up in the sky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you need some different sensor sets integration. It's actually a place where LIDAR might make sense as opposed to on the ground where they're wasting a lot of money on it. I, I've done the autonomous sensor set for autonomous vehicles on the ground, and I've got a background in machine learning and uh, robotics. Um, as part of my weird background. So I actually have assessments that I published around that entire space quite a long time ago now, eight years. But so you need um, autonomous aviation um, and that requires digital air traffic control with unique transponders on everything in the air, which are updating and it has to be common. Um, as um, I'm, I'm actually in, an advisor in stealth on another one, another electric aviation thing. And the CEO there, whose name will also be in stealth until we can actually make it publish, public, mm -hmm. um, let me know that there's something really weird about Europe, which is that gliders actually have their entirely separate detection system, transponder system, aviation control system, so that they can actually, fixed wing gliders can actually spiral up inside clouds and avoid one another. So they actually okay. have a detection system for other gliders that's completely separate from powered aviation, and it has to become the same as powered aviation. Interesting. Right? You have to merge those things. Mm -hmm. right? So the digital air traffic control with unique transponders, that's, gonna, that's the one that is most subject to problematic regulatory maturity. I project that one's going to be mature and baked in top markets, the biggest markets, about 2040. It's going to take that long. It's not like the digital air traffic control, the a unique transponder, the computerized airspace stuff, managing a hundred things in the air and a large volume of air is hard for computers. It's not a technical problem. It is an operational safety and certification problem. It's a regulatory mm -hmm. problem, right? We have to move away from English as the standard language of uh, aviation air traffic control globally to computers speaking to computers. Mm -hmm. An air traffic controller saying, I want this plane to take this flight path that being transmitted through standardized methods to the plane and the plane for the most part doing most of it with it with the oversight of a pilot right mm -hmm. the big planes but then the small planes doing it without any oversight right so yeah. digital air traffic control airframes that are designed for electrification and um, autonomous flight aircraft and autonomous flight is also not particularly difficult right we have drones that do that we have you know um, all sorts of the um most of the uh, military drones have significant autonomous flight capability. They'll, they'll pattern, they'll do a whole bunch of stuff. It's not hard to do. Getting approval to yeah. do it is the hard part. So we need those things to mature. They'll mature at different rates. Mm -hmm. And around 2040, we'll actually have unpiloted, we'll have lots and lots of unpiloted cargo aircraft in the air. And we'll actually be doing autonomous passenger um, travel in the air as well. That's mm -hmm. when we'll have um, at least shorter flights, air taxi kind of things. But those air taxis will be fixed wings, and they won't, you know. And there might be some cases where a rotorcraft will exist, but the rotorcrafts will not be tilt rotors. That entire tilt rotors uh, thing is a dead end technically. You know, um, there's a reason why the only uh, vertical, the only aircraft which 
take off and land vertically and then transition to horizontal flight are in the military. There is no use case for them. Well, there is the, this Italian company now. It uh, hasn't launched it publicly yet, but I think they are planning to launch one for the civilian market as well. I think it's the AW, I don't remember the, na the number. Is this our Augusta, the Italian company? I think it's part of Leonardo Group. I think. Oh, yeah, there's lots of all these tilt rotor things are are dead in the water for a variety of reasons. But let's let's talk mm -hmm. about the tilt rotors just for yeah, a second. Yeah. So the most famous tilt rotor, the only one that actually exists, is the Osprey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Osprey has killed 51 people uh, by falling out of the sky. Mm. It has never been shot down. Like none of these people have died in combat. Yeah. They've died just flying the plane. Yeah. You know? Because of the uh, technical um, technical difficulty of of having this yeah. movement. Yeah. Huh? It's it's really hard to do, and as soon as you mm -hmm. say it's really hard to, and so electric rotor craft that just basically um, the let's just take the complexity levels. So complexity level one is a quadcopter, right? It has variable speed motors on each mm -hmm. corner, and it goes up and down, and it can increase and fly through the air. It has significant power limitations, has range mm -hmm. limitations. Around 2040, 2050, we'll have the battery power to do that. Right. And get mm -hmm. an actually reasonable range and reasonable use cases out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's simple. It's dirt simple. Um, then you get the next level of complexity, which is a current um, uh, rotorcraft jet turbine with the, you know, the weird rub your head, pat your head and rub your stomach simultaneously control system that takes pilots a long time to figure out. And then when they do, oh, and then they can fly sometimes. That one, those rotorcraft require four to five hours of ground maintenance for every hour of flight. And they're very expensive from a, an operational cost as a result. It's like 500. Last time I checked, it was five, over $500 per hour mm -hmm. US for every hour of flight. So it's quite expensive. Then you get into tilt rotors as another layer of complexity. You remove the complexity of the gas turbine and the control linkages to the rotors, but then you add all this complexity from these rotors rotors which tilt up and down yeah and then you get all the aerodynamics transformation of going up and then transitioning to vertical flight and getting any degree of efficient vertical flight with all these things hanging off of it mm -hmm. like you know you get a glider with a high aspect ratio you can fly like an eagle these things fly like a turkey and turkeys don't fly <laughs> um you know so yes. that's kind of the problem right you, you make you simplify the the uh, electric with the electric motor, but then you add all this other complexity, and um, certification is uh, in many cases an n times n thing. What that means is you have all the failure conditions for any given component with any other component. So an electric, like the, let's just take the um, the electron. Uh, it's a simple, simple plane. It's got a lo longer wings, higher aspect ratio, a lower speed. You know, nice range, but it does that by having a very specific body designed for batteries and for electric motors um, and a slightly source lower speed. Now that one, it has an electric motor, which is turning and it has rudders and has a ailerons and stuff. And that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Has very, very few moving parts. Mm -hmm. So the certification, the N times N is actually easier for that compared to any gas turbine engine. If you want to certify the entire engine and plane. Right, it's much easier to certify as soon as we have a certification pathway. And we do under EASA. Pipistrel did it right. It's getting baked. They understand it. It's not hard to certify an electric CTOL 
mm-hmm. now that uh, Pipistrel did the hard work. Yeah. But it, it's it kind of like look at the electric rotorcraft. The n times n of all the failure conditions of those tilt rotors as they go up and can transition, and then they're claiming many of them are claiming autonomy on top of that. You know, it's just like how many? It's like you keep multiplying the number of failure yeah. points, and the certification process becomes mind-boggling. You know, it's it, getting one of those certified is is probably equivalent to certifying you know the C series from Bombardier, you know, which is now over with Airbus. Mm-hmm. It's like that level of complexity and cost. Mm-hmm. Rotorcraft by themselves are expensive. Uh, as an expert in rotorcraft uh, shared with me, it costs what is it? A hundred millions per ton of unladen aircraft weight to certify a current rotorcraft. And that's with a very conventional platform, well understood, like something from, um, you know, uh, like a Textron, you know, Bell Textron um, standard, you know, six passenger executive helicopter, $100 million per ton of airframe. Yeah, actually, I I had an expert on certification here on the podcast a few weeks ago. And yeah, she was pretty um, clear about that. It's it's costly and takes lots of time. Yeah. 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 And, you know, so electric conventional takeoff and landing, you know, as soon as they've got a pathway for those, it's actually going to be cheaper to certify those. They've they've got most of that pathway in place. But at that point, you then say, okay, there aren't that many of them, but it's still expensive to certify because... You know, they're flying above our heads. They yeah. have to be safe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's still going to be expensive. It's just going to be less expensive eventually, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of nice. But yeah, the um, the tilt rotor stuff. It's just, I mean, I, I don't care who's bringing it to market. It's doomed. Mm-hmm. It just makes no sense. Um, this the beauty, the pop, the the superpower of battery electric is simplicity. Yeah. And so the use case for um. Like I talked to the CEO and CFO of Blade. Blade is the only scheduled operator of rotorcraft in all of North America. They've mm-hmm. now actually taken over the uh, rotorcraft uh, helijet operator in British Columbia that I've taken over to the island many times. And they do the Manhattan to JFK runs and Manhattan to the, the, Hamptons, um, they also, yeah. the Hamptons. They also do private yep. jets, right? Yep. And, and so for them, in 10, 15 years, a static rotorcraft hexacopter with suitable to carry six people, probably 15 years, will be viable for them to go from the you know the heliport at the ferry terminal and, and the port in Manhattan to JFK. But that's 15, 20 years from now. That's not tomorrow. And even then, that would require it to be certified to fly over a lot of high-density population areas. So I'm not sure, you know, it's it's actually going to be viable from a power density perspective. Mm-hmm. And it could be viable for an autonomous perspective, but once again, digital air traffic control plus autonomy plus battery energy density plus airframes, right? So it's those three things which are in my regional air maturity model that lead to it being more you know, universally viable. In the next, as I said with Kevin and Cliff and others, you know, the next five years, we'll start to see the regional air mobility, but in order to actually grow it to a significant numbers, we have to get rid of pilots because they're a, a significant choke point. We have mm-hmm. enough pilots for the growth, initial growth of the market, we have to get to autonomy for significant growth of the market. What about all these orders, outstanding letters of intent, many airlines committing to hundreds of eVTOLs? Uh, pretty much every major airline now has an order for a few dozens or even hundreds of oh, yeah. eVTOLs. Have you read any of those contracts? I haven't. 
Yeah, no. I, I think no, I, I haven't. I haven't read the small the, the small print. I haven't read. No, <laughs> no, no. The, these are um, once again the airlines are asserting that they're doing something without any actual commitments that they have to worry about that are more than rounding errors from uh, marketing budgets and engineering budgets. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of statement one. Statement two. Um, there are people who really who fly in helicopters all the time from executive palatial stuff to heliports and stuff. And they think that that's a huge market. And many of them are the heads of airlines. So mm -hmm. the heads of airlines are kind of embedded in the wrong space for to understand how many of these things will actually be in use because they, they and their friends do this. So they assume a lot more people do it. So the availability bias, it's a cognitive mm -hmm. bias that, uh, uh, Kahneman yeah. and Sversky talk about, you know, mm -hmm. back to something we talked about at the beginning. So all these orders, they're not commitments. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example out of uh, one of the SPACs. A, uh, it was an energy storage one, I think. Somebody committed to 300 or $400 million of orders and the SPAC uh, committed then that they had $180 million of revenue in the first year. But the company they signed the MOU with had no revenue and no business. There were three people at a shell and they they had nothing to sign with. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, so you kind of look at these promises. They're necessary hoop you have to jump through in order to get funding. Yeah. But they're not necessarily meaningful in terms of stuff. I, I'll give you the other compare and contrast. Um, Heart Aerospace, mm -hmm. love them, love what they're doing. I, I you know, it's interesting to see where they're pivoted. And I wish them all the all the best. But they had 300 pre-orders for the 19 passenger plane. They're no longer building. Yeah. Well, <laughs> many of them, most of them, have converted to the 30 passenger one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's the point. It's like, okay, what are we yeah. buying? Oh, right. everything is a bit in, in flux at the moment. Like, uh, many things might be changing yeah. right and what about the mainstay of the industry like the, the 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 core of the industry the planes that we take with certain regularity might be every week every month every few months because boeing and airbus will have to come up with some new generation jets at some point in this 80 year period that uh, yep. <laughs> you're forecasting for so what do you see happening here i mean are they gonna uh, go for uh, expensive sustainable aviation fuel with some residual uh, jet fuel that is going to be decreasing uh, conventional jet fuel is going to be decreasing in importance yeah What's so exactly for, that, for that? Um, mm -hmm. the turbojet is absurdly efficient like that 55 percent mm -hmm. we're not going to beat that if we can run on an saf biofuels we're a lot better if we can do change the operational stuff for the contrails, we're a lot better. It doesn't get rid of the NTO and 2O problem, nitrous oxide problem, um, but we can live with a significant reduction. And by the way, as agriculture decarbonizes, the biofuels just get better and better from a carbon perspective, right? They've already improved radically since 2010, um, and they're just going to get better and better from a carbon neutrality perspective. So that's good enough. And then around 2060, 2070, we'll be able to actually design a intercontinental jetliner that will fly you know between you know here and tokyo uh, between vancouver and tokyo and will be fully electric but airframes last 30 to 50 years and so there's going to be a transitionary period the first airframes will be you know flying in 2060 2070 but the last ones that are burning stuff the very last there'll still be a few flying in 2100 right so it's going to take quite a while to transition the industry to full decarbonization and full electrification you know, that's why, you know, it's like doing a projection for 10 years from now to 2032, there's not going to be that much movement. It's useful in terms of understanding what the actual demand curve will be. 
But as we project forward, we have to have to grow the SAF biofuels industry. We have to, um, among other things, we have to eliminate the use of biofuels for any ground transportation, because that's just a waste of biofuels. That entire segment is going to be battery electric or grid tied electric. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the it's like the forty thousand kilometers of high speed electrified grid tied rail, and you know, uh, and the five hundred thousand electric buses, and roughly the same number of electric trucks in China. Tell us what the future is for ground transportation. It's mm-hmm. all battery electric. You know, there might be some niches where we're doing something weird because it's in a specific place, but ninety nine percent cases battery electric or grid tied. You know, mm-hmm. so. Stop using biofuels there. Put them in the marine, long, uh, deep uh, water shipping, and the aviation industry, and grow electrification as rapidly as we can in those two segments for the parts that will be useful. With marine, by the way, it's all inland shipping, two thirds of of nearshore shipping, and then deep water shipping. We have to, we'll never get to batteries because it's just too big a problem. But it's also a decreasing space because forty percent of it is shipping uh, oil, gas, and coal today. This is the, the big the good news about marine shipping is as we stop using fossil fuels, our transoceanic shipping diminishes. Yay. So anyway. Yeah. Um, so, Michael, it's been um, yeah super fascinating conversation. Possibly we, we could uh, keep talking here for hours because there are so many interesting aspects of, of this topic. We need to wrap up now. Where can people find out more about your work, about your writings? And and where are you active in, I don't know, social media or in other platforms where people can check your work? Probably the most e- easiest way is LinkedIn. Um, I'm quite uh, regular on LinkedIn and I, you know, my stuff gets a lot of attention there. But I publish through uh, Clean Technica. I've got a lot of, um, you know, more iterated work on aluminum.com. So if you Google Michael Barnard Clean Technica, up I'll pop, Google Michael Bernard, Illuminum, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-E-M.com. Up will pop a bunch of my work. Um, and, you know, find me on LinkedIn and say hi. So, Excellent. Yeah, definitely. I, w- I recommend everyone to check your work. Um, just like I did, I, co- I came across some time ago. And I got really fascinated by all these very straight talk about all these technologies. And yeah, I know it's some some of your opinions might be controversial uh, in the industry uh, among the people that listen to us that some of them might be <laughs> actually working in, in this type of projects but I think it's it's uh, it's very interesting to uh, yeah to get this this view and yeah I thank you very much for your time today and with for sharing this very detailed assessment of, no of this problem, world we're no living problem. in to the yeah. people who find me controversial I'm sorry your baby is ugly I'm sorry it's not going to deliver climate change value I would recommend that you pivot to something which delivers significant climate value. I have articulated where those spaces are. Um, you know, you want to be able to live with yourself in your retirement. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for your time today. And looking forward to have you some other other day here to continue talking about this very interesting topic. Thank you for having me, Michael. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, A quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you are using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much.